Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Every generation generally wants to make life better. For themselves, but especially for the generations to come. Well, I mean, there are some jerks that don't care, but we just ignore them. Jerks. The big question is, how? Well, today we're going to explore a few ways that some have come up with to improve life for everyone. First, we're going to get a lesson in generosity from our beneficent overlords. Then we'll spend time, energy, and probably a lot of money to conclude that the bloody obvious is in fact the bloody obvious. And then we'll learn the true meaning of Easter and probably wonder how we've gotten it so wrong for so long. So get a firm, we're talking rabid monkey strength type grip on your wallet. Find a chair to sit down on as you may be overwhelmed by learning something you already knew. And get your Bible and craft supplies as you'll be making some revisions. And for the betterment of all mankind, here we go. Here's what we know. The Bidens care about people. The average, small, inconsequential, unwashed mass of virtually useless and generally icky people. You know, like you and me. Why else would old garbage pail Joe, I mean, lunch sack Joe, well, whatever it was. Why else would he sacrifice his entire life to be nothing but a lowly public servant? It's because he can see the plight of us mired in the pigsty of life, wallowing around in our own filth, and he just wants to give us a hand, well, not up so much, more of a hand out, really, as long as he can convince the Congress to authorize the reallocation and redistribution of tax dollars to the sweaty, smelly rabble that he loves so much. And what about his lovely, dare I even say ruggedly handsome, not-at-all-harpy-like bulldog of an elder-abusing wife? What a classy lady, standing behind her man, probably so he doesn't fall over and definitely so she can snap her fingers and get him to brainlessly follow her away from the evil press corps asking questions about things he should know about. Look at what she's had to sacrifice in her life to serve this country. She's had to probably keep Joey on his many, many brain meds, and I'm sure there are some diaper changes in there when the help can't get there in time and someone made a boom-boom. Plus, she's had to deal with him on his rapid slide into dementia rather than just passing him off to whatever kind of home-based care or high-class nursing home she'd likely have pawned him off to by now. And all of this just so that she could be the first lady. (laughs) I mean, so she and Joe could serve the people. Yes, they truly have a, a heart of gold. Well, maybe I phrased that wrong. Not so much a heart of gold, maybe more of a heart for gold. Over and over during the campaign for president, and now during the presidency, JoJo's teleprompter has told him to tell us that he cares about all of us. To prove that, he's cranked up the printing presses and churned out more money than this system will ever be able to handle, which will end in economic disaster. He's removed us from the evil list of those producing a surplus of energy and put us back to begging foreign 
terroristic countries, might I have a bit of oil, with his little pauper oil bowl held out in his fingerless glove-covered grubby-fingered hands. He's looking for ways to let the taxpayer eat millions or billions of student loans and eliminate the default statuses of student loan borrowers so they can get the car and the home and other loans and the credit cards in order to go deeper and deeper into debt. He just wants us to be okay. And one way he and Her Royal Highness, the moderately weathered <laughs> Dr. Lady Jillian Biden, may her name be praised, show how much they care about people is by their unmatched generosity. From CNN.com via MSN headline, President Biden and Vice President Harris released their 2021 tax returns. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I forgot the cackler is in there also, which I think we all know she is just the, oh, the most wonderful, beautiful, hardest working, general. <clears throat> oh, ooh, that's probably just something I ate. We should probably move on. Anyway, let's take a look at the loving generosity displayed by these servants of the people. The article states that in 2021, the Bidens took in more than $600,000 in income, paying an effective tax rate of 24.6%, which seems low based on what he'd like all of us to pay, right? Eh, it doesn't matter. And they generously gave away slightly more than $17,000. 2.85%. In 2020, the article states that they gave away about 5% of their income, so they're probably, you know, gearing up for retirement, trying to close that gap so they'll be okay. I mean, they won't always have Hunter to exploit for ill-gotten cash, right? The, the likelihood of him going to jail and or ODing on a week-long drug-fueled bender is, is pretty high. As for the Kamaloids, they apparently raked in $1.6 million in 2021, which... It's not a bad haul, right? But as we all know, at some point you've made enough money. Uh, so they probably gave away a butt-ton of that money. That would be my guess. Now, they paid an effective tax rate of 31.6%, and they donated, <laughs> drumroll please, $22,100 to charity. A whopping 1.3%. 1.3 full percentages of their income. And to where? Well, mostly their alma maters. Yeah, they, they gave money to their colleges because if there's one thing we know, colleges, which are just, they're just struggling to survive, they need donations. Especially extreme, history-changing donations like these. I mean, at least the Bidens gave to charities helping kids or veterans. And although CNN gave the income and taxes paid for the Kamalayatans for the previous year, much like they did with the Bidens, they didn't mention anything about their charitable giving for the previous year. That's a, that's a curious absence of information, in my humble opinion. CNN wraps up their article with some hard, stinging comments, just absolutely excoriating Donald Trump. <laughs> because, of course, they did. Uh, they say, quote, by releasing their returns once again, the Biden administration has restored a practice dating back to President Richard Nixon that was interrupted while Donald Trump was in office. Trump... <laughs> I kind of ad-libbed that part, declined to release his tax returns, repeatedly claiming he was under audit. Hmm. Well, okay, so let me just stop right here for a second. 
presidents are not required to disclose their financial statements. A precedent set up by Nixon does not a law make. Including Nixon and Biden, there have been 10 presidents, so Trump represents 10% of all presidents since Nixon decided to show that he's not a crook, which ironically he absolutely was. Now, not to condemn or to defend Trump, he, as well as all presidents, currently have the right to disclose their financial statements. Note I'm not saying financial dealings, like the uh, illegal stuff that Joe was absolutely doing through uh, druggy I'm not Bo Hunter Biden. I'm saying your legal financial statements. Now, he chose not to. And, you know, can you blame him? I mean, look at how the media went absolutely apoplectic about his finances. Wild speculation, accusations, lies, spin. And if you think that if he gave him his financial statements, they'd be like, oh, okay, well, he's all good. You're fooling yourself. They would do everything they could to destroy him eh, pretty much no matter what. So I can't blame Trump one bit. But thank goodness our current administration has shown us how much they care about us. And, you know, not through charity, but simply through releasing information. Now, the article wraps up by quoting the White House, quote, The president has shared a total of 24 years of tax returns with the American public, once again demonstrating his commitment to be transparent with the American people about the finances of the commander-in-chief. Hmm. And apparently Kamala la 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 has released 18 years, so, you know, also very transparent. And after reading this article, the most important thing that Joey and Jilly Bean can do is to release their information, and now we can be proud that we have an adult in the office that's willing to show their information to a very friendly, enabling, dare I say, complicit media? Fine. Oh, yeah. Okay, whatever. Good for him. I, I think if I'd ran, I'd simply say, mind your business. It's not anyone's business but mine as to what my financial records are. That said, if I were either of these couples, I'd be embarrassed to have made as much as they did and donate as little as they donated. Looking back through past presidents, even people like Obama, who I did not like and feel was unbelievably destructive, someone I believe was one of the largest disappointments in this country's history because he had an unbelievably unique opportunity to do so much good, but screwed it up in favor of partisanship. Even he and Michelle and her lovely arms gave in the neighborhood of 20% of their income. And it appears that a number of past presidents have given in the 10 to 20% range during their tenure. Regarding Trump, I have no idea. And looking it up online yields mostly hit pieces. I don't know what his actual income was. The money taken in on a property isn't necessarily income, which is where most articles seem to go. You know, he made Google Infinity dollars on his property. But they don't even attempt to relate that to income because they have an agenda. And truth is not in that agenda. That said, I do know that Trump donated his entire presidential salary, all four years. So, at a minimum, he donated $400,000 per year to various charities. Now, what percentage of his income was that? I, I don't know. Probably not a huge percent, but we really don't know. And we don't know what other giving he's done, so I kind of have to just discount him from this discussion. We do know, however, what these couples have done. And uh, it's disappointing to say the least. At least it is to me. And this isn't anything new. Looking back, at least in the year 2010, when Joe was vice president, the Bidens gave a stunning 1.4% of their uh, legal declared income to charity, while the Obamas donated 14% in that same year. Now, the only positive is that by being greedy with their money, they're not donating to stupid and or evil causes. Yeah, so, so that's nice. Now, what do we do with all this? Well, the Bible speaks about money a lot. And with good reason. As we all know, I mean, 
everyone knows this from 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Now, it's more often misquoted as money is the root, but it's the love of money. That's the problem. The setting up of money as an idol, a savior, something to be worshipped. And for most people, this love of money is best displayed in their charitable giving. How much do you give the church? How much do you give to those in need, either directly or through specific charities? And although I mock Kamala for giving to their colleges, at least they're doing something they feel is a benefit to society in some way, right? Now, I say that this applies to most people because there are those that legitimately are in positions that they can't give money. You know, even when considering the widow's might, the two coins given that equal the penny, there are people that are, or at least they feel they are, that destitute. We'll kind of come back to that in a minute. Regarding the rest of us, those that can legitimately afford to give, well, we fall into one of two camps, saved or not saved. Joe and Jill, and yes, I know, wonderful, faithful Catholics, uh, judging by their fruits, they're absolutely not saved. And I can say the same for Kamala and her husband for different reasons, but the same condition. So portions of the Bible apply to and describe them. Portions don't because we can't expect an unsaved person to live as a saved person. The love of money is definitely the root of all kinds of evil, and that has universal application. In fact, if you hold anything up as an idol, placing it directly in front of your face so you can't see God anymore, that is by definition evil as it does the opposite of worshiping God. So we all can do this and are all guilty of doing this. Now, some say the Christians must tithe 10%. In fact, I think every church I've ever attended has had the pastor incorrectly give the same Old Testament references to the tithe and apply it to us today. And further on, Dave Ramsey, who claims to be a Christian, and I'm not saying he is or isn't. I, I suspect he is, although the, the company he keeps in the celebrity evangelical world concerns me enough that I've stopped listening to him. He even uses the Old Testament references to apply the 10% tithe to us today. Unfortunately, as I've learned and grown, the Old Testament tithe was more around 30% when you added up the various tithes that they were mandated to bring, you know, annually, seasonally, and every, I don't remember, seven years, three years, whatever it was, doesn't matter. The point is that the tithe is actually about 30% and can be likened more to taxes in order to run the functions of the governmental system they had in place. This command to tithe 10% is found nowhere exclusively in the Bible, as in the Old Testament tithes were never reduced to only 10%, and nowhere in the New Testament has this ever been reiterated, as the governmental structure no longer existed. In fact, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he was referring to a promised gift from those in Corinth to the building of churches and promotion of the gospel elsewhere, and he said that he was sending people ahead of him to help them arrange this gift, so that when he came, it was actually a collected gift over time, not an exaction of money. Then he goes on to write, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Paul is making it clear that they, and by extension we, are to give from the heart as we're led. He's not promising, despite what the prosperity wolves would have you believe, that the more of a seed offering you sow, the more money you'll get back in return. The bountiful reaping may be a blessing that returns to you in various ways, which could be monetarily, but may just be the blessing of being part of the promotion of the gospel. 
The point being, we give from the heart. We give as we're led. We don't give out of compulsion. And the more we remove the love of our money, the more we can let go of what we think is so precious. Now, all that being said, personally, I do believe that a 10% tithe or gift is a good starting point. I think for most, again, there are exceptions to this, but for most, 10% is actually very doable. Uh, Being human, I do know the angst of doing this. I can and have looked at my total donation percentage and thought, if I didn't give that, I could do this and I could pay for that. And the list goes on. But, But those thoughts quickly return to what am I donating my money for? And I'll throw in time, talent, energy. What am I donating to and why? And God willing, I'll continue to be able to do so. Regarding our current administration, they have no compulsion, no reason, no driving moral or ethic to donate anything to anyone, and that's reflected in their charitable giving. There are many unsafe people who donate a massively larger percentage of their income than I do, and they must borrow that moral urging from the Bible as that desire does not emanate out of their own sinful hearts and minds. In the case of our current administration, I feel comfortable saying that they have a greater desire for their own wealth than they do to help their fellow man. And I'm sure that if they were asked, they'd probably say something about how that's what our taxes are for, to fund the governmental programs to help people. And no, the exaction of money is not charity. It does not have the same effect on the giver or the receiver. One last point I'll make, and and this is to the Christian. We all know the verse, to love of money is the root, blah, 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 blah. But do you know the context of that verse? I think it's important since Paul wrote an entire letter that contains the one verse we know, but is not the entirety of the letter. I know you're probably shocked. Paul had just finished a section related to how the church should function in relation to certain kinds of people. He spoke about caring for the widows and how the family should be her first resource, but the church should step up if she is truly alone. But he's also clear that men should be providing for their families in life and in death, so a widow shouldn't be left destitute. He spoke of the contribution older widows could have to the church and how younger widows should look to remarry. He speaks of elders, slaves, and masters, and then charges Timothy to, quote, teach and urge these things. He then goes on to say, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs." See, although the basic concept of the love of money being the root of all kinds of evils can apply to all, Paul was specifically speaking about false teachers, those that are purporting to be Christians teaching other people saved or lost. He was speaking about those that are teaching in order to financially gain and that they teach others that following their distorted version of the gospel will bring them prosperity as well. 
But all it ultimately does is bring people to ruin and destroys whatever faith they had to begin with. All you have to do to find these kinds of charlatans, these heretical teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, is to turn on just about any of the so-called Christian TV channels. They're everywhere, making constant promises for health, wealth, and prosperity. If you just sow your $1,000 seed today, well, this is not biblical. This is not the gospel. Those people aren't saved or Christians at all to begin with. And those promises are nothing but lies that propagate the love of money and are told out of a greedy heart because of their love of money. And the ultimate evil, this is the root of, is millions of people dying and going to hell because they never heard the truth. Now, these people are also complicit. All they had to do was open and read their own Bible. They would see that these teachers are lying. But these teachers will not fare well when the final judgment gavel is dropped. So let me urge you, if you're not a Christian, find out what it means to repent and believe and then get right with God. Do it today. Don't wait. If you are a Christian, look at your charity. What does it say about you? Why do you give or not give? Why do you give the amount you give? This is not for the world to judge. This is not for me to judge. This is for you to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance and then take whatever action is needed. Give as you've decided in your heart, not because you have to or you're guilted to or because the pastor claims to have the magic number or because you know your tax returns will be displayed publicly soon. So you better get them cleaned up. Now seek God's guidance. Don't ignore your conscience and do as you're led. And for those of us that are able to give, we must not forget to praise God that he has allowed us to participate in helping his children and his image bearers. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In trying to work out a lead-in to this article commentary, as I typically do, I was trying to figure out the best way to classify it. At first I was thinking that maybe the concept of circular reasoning might be right. That's where you prove something using something else, but you need that something else in order to prove the original something. For instance... I'm my daughter's father. And how can I prove that? Because she's my daughter. Although both of those are true, there's a reason why the office professional at the school office requires me to show my ID when I check her out. But as I was looking at this, it didn't seem quite right. So then I thought maybe it was the logical fallacy of begging the question. This happens when someone bases the premise of an argument on the idea that the conclusion is true. No, officer, I simply could not have been speeding, for you see, I never speed. And that's usually when the nice officer stares at you for a moment, then hands you your citation, head shaking. But this didn't seem quite right either to me, and I'm sure there's a moniker for this, but I've decided that I'm just going to have to put the best label I could come up with on this study, and the label I've decided upon is, uh, no-duh. Maybe this is the, uh, no-duh fallacy. Found on phys.org, that's P-H-Y-S dot org, headline, New Research Shows What It Takes to Make Society Change for the Better. Okay, so far so good. I mean, and then we get into the words of the article, and this is where things really start to go awry. 
This is a joint study performed by the University of Maine, the University of Maine at Augusta, the University of Vermont, and Université Laval in Quebec, Canada. Yes, an international quad college study. So you know it's going to be fantastic. The premise, as stated in the opening paragraph, is as follows. Quote, Many people try to make society change for the better. The real challenge is how to get good solutions to scale up for major change. New research suggests that social change may depend on the relationship between beneficial behaviors and policies. All right, can you see it yet? Hang with me. The newly termed fallacy will become clearer very soon. So the study was conducted to try to determine how, quote, major transformative social change can be accomplished with a particular aim of trying to understand how this change can be enacted in society with regard to the, quote, growing problem of climate change. Okay, so now you have a clear understanding of the general political slant of this study. Boiling this down, the study looked at two aspects of society, put simply top-down and bottom-up. Top-down is defined as public or governmental policy, mandates, laws, etc., things like that. Bottom-up is defined as the grassroots movements, uh, the people pushing or requesting the change, enacting changes in neighborhoods or communities pretty much of their own accord. In this study, as I stated before, they looked at moving society to a point of working to mitigate the effects of climate change. In doing so, they've made the assumption that climate change is both happening, negative, and controllable. And they've made the assumption that mitigating the effects is beneficial to society. Now, by making the latter assumption, they further assumed that society as a whole desires to make changes in order to mitigate the effects. But due to the scope of the issue and the costly nature of blanket, alleged solutions, society is not able to do this without support from policy makers. So they created a model of transformative societal change with regard to both top-down policy change and bottom-up behavioral change. And we've spoken about models before. They're only as good as the modelers that make them and the data the modeler uses to make the model. Models can be manipulated to output the exact result you want by selectively inputting data and carefully crafting and adjusting the design and parameters of the model. That said, I don't think they did that here, as this entire exercise was a lot of wasted action to find a, well, duh, conclusion. No doubt the researchers obtained multiple grants in order to perform this study, so at least they likely profited from this mess, as nobody else will. Well, at least not positively. One of the researchers was quoted as saying, quote, large-scale social change is not just policy or behavior, but the emergence of a new self-reinforcing system that combines both. This allows us to ask new questions, such as, how would a new pattern of behavior and policy spread? My question is, how is this new? With a follow-up question of, you serious, Clark? The article sums up the findings, quote, the results show that both behavioral change and policy change are required to achieve large-scale social change, and that they need to happen together, though neither can get the job done on its own 
policy change is especially critical. The research found that if the bottom-up behavior spread too quickly outside of the groups that had policies backing it up, it slowed down. I mean, these are the genius conclusions they're coming up with. And here's another one. Quote, the simulation suggests that projects that involve both bottom-up viral spread of behavior and top-down policy change may be the best type of solution for large sustainability issues. So laws or policies, funding, and a populace that wants it works more betterer. Oh, no duh. Let's try to break this down very simply. The situation is that a parent wants their eight-year-old to eat their broccoli. Scenario one, the child loves broccoli. As soon as you place it in front of him, he gobbles it up. This is bottom up. No policy change. No incentives needed or given. Scenario two, the child hates broccoli. The parent must enact policies or laws, potentially with incentives, to persuade the child. This may be slathering cheese on the broccoli. This may be the promise of dessert or other reward. This may be on threat of whoopings. This may work in the moment, but when the top-down enforcement is removed, the desired action dies. Scenario three, the child likes broccoli, but only with some cheese on it, and the parent puts some cheese on the broccoli as incentive, so the top-down policy of eat your broccoli is combined with top-down funding of cheese, and the bottom-up desire to eat the cheesy broccoli by the child results in a win-win, policy-followed scenario. Admittedly, this isn't perfect, but this is coming from a guy that absolutely hates broccoli, and would have required scenario two, probably to the point of whoopings, but is thankful that his parents did not institute a top-down policy on food eating. Well, for the most part, except for oh, the hated stew gravy on bread, because I wouldn't eat the stew. Oh, it's just awful. Probably child abuse. So this was the conclusion to the study. If society wants to change, either through natural desire or through convincing, and the governing authorities support the change through policies and material support, the change is more likely to happen. And, uh, no doubt. But it didn't stop with the conclusions, because <laughs> that would be silly. No, they created a mathematical equation, a differential equation to be exact, with, uh, with a lot of variables and Greek letters and a number of brackets and parentheses, and I, being a trained engineer, passing and putting little air quotes around that, calculus 1, 2, and 3, and differential equations, have no idea what in the world that equation means. But what they did is make a bunch of graphs using said equation. And they're nice. I'm not angry at the graphs. But the reality is they're basically return on investment type of graphs. There comes a point where the combination of bottom up and top down hits a sweet spot where the maximum progress is made. So why did they do this? Well, because this is what leftists do. Try to figure out how to push society the direction they want them to go through faux grassroots. And I say faux because these are usually paid grassroots activists and they use forced policy changes. Case in point, look at the push for all electric vehicles. The reality is if you talk to the average person, they don't want them. If you want it, fine but leave them alone. Let them drive what they want. But we have policy changes being made 
We have government funding of vehicle manufacturers that play ball, so not Tesla. And they have faux grassroots through these shill car manufacturers and energy companies trying to drum up excitement for these things. But the true grassroots has no interest. If they could just get excitement from you and I up a few notches, they'd be sitting at the sweet spot on the graph. A side note. I say that the lefties do this, which is accurate. The reason I don't say the righties do this is because they're morons. They can't figure out how to drive policy, drum up excitement, craft a coherent message. They're just absolutely terrible at it. The left has it down to a T, unfortunately. Now, basically, this entire study was done to try to more effectively force society the direction our overlords want us to go. So, if it's the Green New Deal or celebration of supposed transgender children, or as I call them, abused children, or universal basic income or reparations or whatever it is, if they can figure out the most efficient and effective way to drum up the appearance of bottom-up excitement and use top-down forced policies backed by sacks of money, probably with a little dollar sign on it, in order to force their worldview they'll be all fat and happy and shove us along to whatever their cold, black, evil hearts desire. The word for this is manipulation. And make no mistake, every direction you turn, you're being manipulated. These researchers, politicians, advertisers, social media, educational institutions, media, and the list is endless, are all trying to manipulate us. And don't get me wrong, they're not all nefarious. They don't all have evil intentions. But some do. And we know that manipulation, lying, twisting or concealing the truth, this is on the first page of Satan's playbook. This is arguably his main weapon. Jesus said this about Satan in John 8. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, Satan loves to lie. He loves to manipulate. He loves confusion. He loves chaos. His goal, his passion is to drag every one of us to hell. Knowing he can't do that with everyone, he will then do all he can to destroy us. Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 5, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that's what we're to do. Be sober-minded and watchful. Our job is not to bury our heads in the sand and just let life happen to us or around us. We need to be wide-eyed, wide awake. As the song says, I'm awake, alert, alive, enthusiastic. We must know what's going on in the world. There are an infinite number of ways we're manipulated every day. There are big players that are trying to force you and force me, the country, the world, in a direction of their choosing. They're just doing what their father, the devil, wants them to do. We can't humanly fight on every front, although there are some hills we should stand and, if necessary, die on. But we can't fight every battle, so we ultimately must rest in God, knowing that He is in control. Even through all of the lies and all the evil that's going on in the world, He is in ultimate control. He must be, or He isn't omnipotent and sovereign and thus not God. By definition, God must be ultimately in control. So as for us, be ever vigilant. Stay in the word. Stay in prayer and guard your heart. Satan may be able to manipulate the world for a little while. But as Jesus said about his apostles and by extension us, the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of this world. 
And then going on in 1 Peter 5, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now that may not happen in this world or in this lifetime. It may not happen until eternity. But we can rest in the promise that it will happen. So don't let yourself be naive. Don't let yourself sleepwalk your way through life. We may be strangers in a strange land, but we are in that strange land, if even for a short time. We have a duty to do what God has called us to do. Love him with everything we are. Love our neighbors like we love ourselves and tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. I believe that one way we can love our neighbors is to fight against Satan's agenda for humanity. And we can't do that unless we stay engaged, stay informed, and stay alert. Ah, Easter. The day when the Easter bunny died for all the candy in the world, but was reborn in a plastic egg and now once a year flies around the world all in one night searching for colorful woven baskets full of plastic or, if you don't hate the planet, that papery kind of fake grass in order to give toys and candy to all of the good pagan boys and girls. Well, not all, but the, the ones who have parents that believe in it and can afford to do so. Yes, I know, this is rank heresy, but I say this to make a point. Would the religious leaders around the world know that this is nothing but a ruse, or would they be sitting, hands folded, head bowed, solemnly nodding in agreement? Because I stumbled across this from Newsmax, headline, Pope makes Easter pleas for Ukraine peace, cites nuclear risk. And I'm not confident the Pope, or also cited the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, for another example, would have any idea that this was not, in fact, the story of Easter. Okay, I exaggerate a little bit. They clearly do know what happened, but I'm not exaggerating when I say that I'm not confident that they know the significance or why it happened or what it means for all of humanity. There's no question that the last couple Easter's have come in some, shall we say, odd times. And yes, I know that for other countries and for other periods in history, a lot of what we're dealing with would be considered normal or even no big deal. But for this time in history, for a lot of us, this has been rattling. Despite your belief about the pandemic, the economy, the war, the reality is that there are many people, many families hurting, deeply hurting because of the events of the last two years. Although Christmas is probably more widely celebrated, more popular around the world, and also very significant in the Christian calendar, which is a massive understatement, the celebration of Easter, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, conquering sin, death, and hell, making the way of salvation possible for mankind, is the culmination, the pinnacle of the purpose of Jesus coming to earth. As such, you'd think that the Pope and the Archbishop would, um, you know, kind of focus on, on that part. You'd think that. Yeah, you'd be wrong. No, turns out the emotionless, basic facts of Easter are there in order to uh, push a political desire and make pleas to leaders of various countries to uh, do the right thing. <laughs> Come on. Come on. It's Easter. I want to briefly cover the Easter message given by the Pope, which I could 
really read the entire thing as it's about half the length of one of my typical podcast segments, and then briefly cover the message given by the Archbishop, which is even easier as it's about three quarters the size of the Pope's message. And then I've got a little surprise after that. So their messages were really, you know, five to ten minutes uh, for the Easter message from either of them. I mean, I hope we didn't bother them. It almost seems like they had other things going on that day. I, I guess maybe we should thank them for, you know, stopping by at the church to check in on Easter. Well, let's take a look at the Pope's message first, shall we? He entitled his message, Urbi e Orbi. Or, the Lord is risen... Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. It translates to the city and the world. You know, for Easter. He starts in the first paragraph in the room with the disciples behind the locked door, mourning, afraid, and Jesus stands in the midst of them and says, Peace be with you. In fact, Jesus says that twice. So, <laughs> Easter! He then moves directly into, uh, into us today staring incredulously at war. He likens people hiding from the bombing to the disciples locking themselves in the room. We're supposed to be coming out of a pandemic arm-in-arm, hand-in-hand, together as a united world. But, quote, instead we are showing that we do not yet have within us the spirit of Jesus, but the spirit of Cain, who saw Abel not as a brother, but as a rival and thought about how to eliminate him. We need the crucified and risen Lord so that we can believe in the victory of love and hope for reconciliation. Today, more than ever, we need him to stand in our midst and repeat to us, peace be with you. The Pope goes on to say how Jesus decided to keep his wounds from the crucifixion so that the Father can see them and have mercy on us, and then says, quote, As we contemplate those glorious wounds, our incredulous eyes wide open, our hardened hearts break open, and we welcome the Easter message. Peace be with you. Hey, so there you go. That's it. That is the Easter message. Peace be with you. Everything that Jesus went through, the beatings, the mocking, the torment, the torture, the humiliation, the pain, the agony, the bearing of all the sins of those who would be saved, the turning away of his father, the death and then his glorious resurrection, as I said, conquering sin, death, and hell, all of that was done to give us the message, peace be with you. Almost seems like with the combined IQ of the three-in-one Godhead, they... I don't know, could have come up with an easier way of getting that message of peace be with you out to the world. I mean, if that was the point of all this, seems like a lot of drama for a relatively simple message. That's all I'm saying. Much like me, that's all the Pope was saying as well. (laughs) Oh, I mean, he goes on to cite Ukraine and, and the Middle East and Jerusalem, Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Israelis and Palestinians, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Myanmar, Afghanistan, Africa, particularly the Sahel region, Ethiopia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the eastern parts of South Africa, Latin America, and finally the Catholic Church in Canada and their dealings with the indigenous peoples there. Yeah, peace be with all of them. Because that's what Easter is all about, Charlie Brown. He wraps up with this, um, something of an Easter message with this. 
Quote, and mourning to the drama of refugees and to the economic and food crisis, the signs of which we are already seeing, faced with the continuing signs of war as well as the many painful setbacks to life, Jesus Christ, the victor over sin, fear, and death, exhorts us not to surrender to evil and violence. Brothers and sisters, may we be won over by the peace of Christ. Peace is possible. Peace is a duty. Peace is everyone's primary responsibility. So the message of Easter is, peace be with you. And our primary responsibility as humans, as Christians, is peace. Got it. I'll be peaceful. When I die and I get to the pearly gates and St. Peter is there, as we know he will be, because that's what all the cartoons tell me, I'll tell him that I need to be ushered in right away as I was peaceful. Done and done. But just in case, let's see what the old Archbishop of Canterbury Marcus Welby, MD, I mean, whoops, Justin Welby has to say, and if you get that joke, you're either old or you're an old soul. Anyway, let's take a look at his Easter message, shall we? He starts off, as all Easter messages do, quote, On 3rd of March this year, President Zelensky gave a speech in which he declared the end of the world has arrived. Thank you, good night, everybody. There's more. He spends a paragraph on Ukraine before switching focus to, (laughs) no, silly, not Jesus, Syria, South Sudan, Afghanistan, and Myanmar, because the end of the world has arrived for them, apparently. Then he finds a little time to get to the Bible, just for a sec, you know. Mary's world had ended as of the first Easter Sunday morning, right? Jesus was crucified, and Mary and the other women had gone to the tomb. And as Welby says, quote, the greatest event ever in the world's history was to be revealed to those that society counted for little. The new world, where justice reigns and hope lives, was to be experienced first by a woman in tears of despair who had seen the greatest injustice. Not just for her personally, In his death, violence seemingly triumphed, physical force won, hatred and fear overcame love and hope. It seemed there was no justice. And let me editorialize here for just a moment, because as we know, no justice, no peace. Let's go on. That was apparently enough of a little foray into the Bible for Welby, so, you know, back to us. We, too, are living in a world of injustice. Quote, But the Easter message is that what we cannot do has been brought into the world by God. Okay, so the Easter message isn't peace be with you. It's actually what we can't do has been brought into the world by God. Well, I mean, that message is maybe a little wordy, a little clunky. Gotta say, from an optics viewpoint, I like the Pope's message better, but let's see where Welby goes with this. Well, he goes on, quote, For Christ Jesus is alive with the life of the world to come, a life where every tear is wiped away, every injustice righted, every evil exposed and judged and banished, and through Jesus a new future is set for the whole world. The resurrection promises each nation and every victim and survivor that the injustices, cruelties, evil deeds, and soulless institutions of this world do not have the last word. Not only his blood-stained grave clothes are left behind in the tomb, but all of our grave clothes. Okay, 
He then says that what we proclaim at Easter is that it's a, quote, season of life and hope of repentance and renewal, and then does his ecumenical best to capture literally the whole world under the umbrella of when we all get to heaven, referencing the Eastern Orthodox Holy Week, Ramadan, leading to Eid for the Muslims, Passover for the Jews, all wonderful times of repentance and renewal, apparently. So, Russia should call a ceasefire, withdraw troops, and talk it out. Oh, also, the UK sending asylum seekers to Rwanda is wrong and can't carry the weight of the resurrection. Nope, no, no, no. We're not even going to try to noodle that one out. I don't need anyone's head to pop. Not on my watch. He goes on to basically put these naughty dictators in their places as because of the resurrection of Jesus, quote, the victory of goodness and love has been guaranteed. The defeat of evil is assured. Injustice is defeated. The end of the old world has arrived. And because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, quote, maybe there can be an ending of a world where we turn away from the refugee, the end of a world where we don't care, the end of the world where propaganda wins, where dictators can assume that everyone will simply be kept in check by the threat of arrest and violence. So I think the Easter message from Welby's point of view is, justice will be done and the bad guys will get theirs. Okay. Uh, are you still hanging on with me? All right, I guess... I guess I've been spoiled growing up, and it's probably true. I, I've probably been spoiled growing up. I've heard better and I've heard worse Easter messages, but never have I heard one that absolutely ignores the Easter message during the giving of the Easter message. There are an estimated 1.2 billion Catholics worldwide, and the Anglican Church has about 86 million members, and although I realize that the various parishes and churches around the world may have heard other more Jesus-centric Easter messages locally, there are 1.3 billion people who heard that their leaders say that the message of Easter is either peace or justice. In contrast, Franklin Graham, who I wouldn't agree with on every point of his theology, but I have no doubt we stand united on the core of the faith, and I have no problem calling him a brother in Christ. Well, he was in Ukraine on Easter, and along with a few churches there, had a 30-minute Easter service. There was an opening introduction that was brief and was not part of the service, just a quick comment on why he was there, what was going on, what Samaritan's Purse was doing there. It wasn't an ad. It was just an intro. Then the service started. They started with prayer. There were a few hymns sung by a choir. Graham's Easter message, which was, it was only about 11 or 12 minutes long, and then they had more music and closing prayer. And except for the intro, the focus was not on peace. It was not on justice. It was not on Ukraine or any other country of the world, including Russia. It was not about war. It was not about politics. Franklin Graham gave what I believe to be one of the best 10-minute Roman Road, starting in Genesis, ending with the resurrection, gospel presentations I think I've ever heard. He started at the creation of man and woman, walked through the law and sin, separation from God, Jesus coming to earth. Then he paused to read from the scriptures what most of us would consider to be the Easter morning story. And he read it from Matthew. And then he presented the way of salvation accurately and succinctly. It was beautiful. You can find a link to his message in the notes. And like I said, if you skipped everything else, his message was only about 11 or 12 minutes long. It's well worth the listen. The message of Easter is one of hope, of forgiveness, of victory, of salvation. 
We're told in the Bible that there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famine. There will be poor people. There will be pain and heartache. There will be disease and death. Those who follow Jesus will be hated and persecuted because the world hated and still hates him. There's nothing wrong with praying for peace and praying for the less fortunate, praying for justice to be done. But to hijack the Easter message, or honestly, any sermon to deliver a political speech, is bordering on blasphemy, in my opinion. New York Senator Chuck Schumer was handed the pulpit for a brief speech on Easter Sunday at the Christian Cultural Center, a Brooklyn church with more than 37,000 members. So what part of the resurrection account did Chuckles focus on? Why the stone rolling back for the tomb, of course. Surprised? Why? Because he's a flaming God-hating leftist? That doesn't mean that he doesn't love Jesus, right? Well, expanding on what exactly the tomb revealed when that stone was rolled away by, by him and his ilk, not an angel, it revealed the newly minted Justice Katanji Brown Jackson and all the new judges that Schumer has appointed. And under his leadership as majority leader, the first from New York, he noted, he personally, apparently, appointed a majority of minority judges and two-thirds of those are women. He wraps up his rousing Easter speech with this, quote, So, my brothers and sisters, in conclusion, this is what changing of the seasons look like. It looks like progress. It looks like growth. It looks like our everlasting struggle to perfect what was once imperfect. Lord knows it took too long to get here, but now that we're here, there's no going back. The stone has been rolled away from the tomb, and all those good things we hoped and prayed for will come to pass. So happy Easter. God bless all of you. God bless Pastor Bernard and God bless the United States of America. See, they rolled that stone away from the tomb of diversity and inclusion and all the good things we've been waiting for. Not Jesus. No, no, no. The good things. Blasphemy, right? Chucky is going to have quite the wake-up call when he finds out that being majority leader on earth doesn't buy him a whole lot in eternity. God elects who he will for salvation. Schumer may be on the list. I don't know that. And we should pray that he is, as we shouldn't wish anyone to spend an eternity in hell. But realistically, the 71-year-old Schumer is running out of time, and he's not showing any signs of interest in anything to do with Jesus. I mean, unfortunately for Jesus, he's more of a political liability at this point, and Schumer just doesn't need a boat anchor like Jesus weighing him down. As Franklin Graham pointed out in his good and correct and biblical Easter message, God has laws, and no matter how good of a person we think we are, we've broken those laws. We've not always put God first. We've stolen, we've lied, we've lusted, we've dishonored our parents. Well, I mean, you have. I treated my parents with the utmost respect at all times, like a good boy. <clears throat> we can't follow the law. And we were never meant to. The law is there to show us our sin, our depravity, the futility of trying to be good enough for a perfectly holy God. But Jesus came, lived his life, was tempted, was mocked, was tested, but never sinned. And then just as the plan was laid out, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin with his blood, his body, his life on the cross. And when he took the sins of all those that would be saved, he allowed us, those that are saved, God's children, to put on his perfect righteousness. So when God sees us, he sees his perfect, holy son, and not the sinful wretches that we were. 
And because of Jesus alone, we no longer have to fear the wrath of the Father being poured out on us for all of eternity in hell. We can actually enter the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. What an amazing gift given to us 2,000 years ago, celebrated every year at Easter, or at least it should be. The Pope and the Archbishop and Schumer, they missed it. Likely hundreds of millions around the world missed it because they were listening to their so-called spiritual and or political leaders. Hundreds of millions believe that the Easter message is one of, your purpose in life is to be at peace, or justice will be done, so don't worry, those guys will get what's coming to them. Or, because you voted for me, I'm providing you with all the good things. Now worship me with your applause. They heard nothing of God's love, of the sacrifice of Jesus, nothing of the law, of sin, death, and hell, nothing of repentance, grace, faith, and salvation. They heard that they need to try harder. They heard that everything for everyone will work out for the good of everyone. They heard that their enemies will get theirs. Millions upon millions of people, of souls, that should be opening their Bibles to be modern-day Bereans and verify that what they've been told is actually in the Bible, testing their leaders for accuracy. Millions of souls that opt to just blankly stare and nod in agreement, mouth agape, drool dripping from the corner of their mouths. Millions of souls bound for an eternity in hell of their own free will. Let's not forget the real reason for the Easter season. Let's pray for those that are bound by the deceptive tactics of Satan, hypnotized into a state of malaise, content to have their itching ears scratched rather than their hearts pricked. The world is full of evil, and although we have periods of good and periods of darkness, the world is from our vantage point moving steadily into the blackest of nights. But God is still God. He's still sovereign. He is still on the throne. And Jesus is alive, holding what he created together by his will. The moment in time will come when the chance for all of those lost souls to turn will be no more. Until then, in whatever sphere of influence you have, tell others the real story of Easter. (laughs) They may have never heard it. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast.outlook.com or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.